before you stand for the reading of the gospel, I'd like to share with you a very brief um, summary, or not summary, sort of introduction to this gospel reading. As many of you know, we are in um, the third year of our lectionary series, year C, when we will be walking through, through most of, De- of 2022, the Gospel of Luke. Not every Sunday, but most Sundays, we'll be um, encountering the Gospel of Luke. Oh, I'm going to ask you to stand up here in any second now, so you're… <laughs> but um, currently, we're in the fourth chapter of Luke. Um, the early part of his ministry, of course. In fact, this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And I wanted to share this intro simply because last week's gospel and this week's gospel are intimately connected. Thank you, Debbie, again for preaching last week and for sharing such a good and hopeful word of God. As you might remember, if you were with us, last week's gospel, um, Jesus was welcomed home to his home in Nazareth, welcomed as essentially as a hero. They had been hearing about him as a preacher, as a teacher, in fact, as an miracle worker throughout much of Galilee, certainly in Capernaum. And now he was coming home for the first time as this this, uh, somewhat now renowned preacher and teacher. They were eager to hear from him, and they welcomed him home. They gave him the podium, a chance to teach in the synagogue, which is not something that everyone would do or could do. And, And so, as he stepped forward, he opened up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he offered it as his first proclamation, his manifesto. It was a beautiful, beautiful moment. And again, that's what we encountered last week. But the scene did not end there. And so, today we tell the rest of the story, what we've titled, Unwelcome at Home. Now you may stand for the reading of the gospel. Jesus rolled up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down as a teacher in the synagogue would do, always teaching while seated. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him, and they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? And Jesus said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, so do here also in your hometown the things that we've heard that you did in Capernaum. And Jesus said, but truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, as you remember, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet, Elijah was sent to none of them, only to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon, a non-Jew. There, was also, there were also many lepers in the land of Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, they drove him out of town, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But Jesus passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord God, you have given us Your Word as Your truth, as honey to our lips. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, may it be acceptable in Your sight, for You are our rock, our strength, and our Redeemer. 
Amen. So quickly, a summary of the gospel reading today. Jesus says something they didn't want to hear, and they cancel him, right? Rather than engage in conversation with him, they throw him out of town. How quickly mob anger takes the place of civil discourse. Sound familiar? It should. How does that happen? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. Some of you know that my favorite political columnist is David Brooks. He's of the New York Times. On January 13th, so just a little less than two weeks ago, he wrote a column titled, America is Falling Apart at the Seams. Now, I don't mean to depress you, but I do want to lift up some of the alarming statistics that he, that he pulls out, these, like these. Reckless driving is on the rise. The number of airplane altercations has exploded. The murder rate is surging. Drug overdoses are increasing. Americans are drinking more. Nurses say patients are getting more abusive. Teachers are facing a rising tide of disruptive behavior. Hate crimes rose 30% between 2019 and 2020. Add all of that um, alongside alarmingly high rates of depression and suicide and loneliness, especially among our teens and our young adults, and it begs us to throw up our hands and ask the question, what is going on here? Is it a political crisis? Is it a spiritual crisis? Is it a psychosocial crisis? Is it all of the above? Uh, Bottom line is, We've seen a lot of public rage out there, haven't we, from school board meetings to the steps of the U.S. Capitol, but but what's causing such anger? I certainly don't have an answer, of course, but today's reading provides a, a, a fascinating, if at the very least, an interesting case study for us to explore, because a crowd shows up at the synagogue. Sure, they're showing up like we are for church, for a routine worship service, and before you know it, and that's what's interesting, they've suddenly turned into an angry mob. Why? Well, let's take a look at the crowd itself, because there are at least two reasons. There are lots of reasons, but there are at least two reasons why that could explain their agitation. One is nostalgia. Nostalgia. Um, let me ask, do you have a song that immediately takes you back to an earlier time? I bet you do. Uh, last week, uh, I, was, uh, I was listening to a Spotify play- playlist um, when out comes the song Sister Christian by Night Rangers, 2004. I don't know if you remember it, but it totally dates me. I was immediately transported back to Terry Rosebrock's living room in Somerville, South Carolina, playing cards at 3 a.m. with some high school friends. It, it was a remarkably vivid memory for me. It totally brought a smile to my face. I'm sure there are certain songs like that that have done the same or will do the same for you. That's nostalgia. Gil Rendell calls nostalgia a warmly remembered past, and he and he adds that, that especially during times of stress and anxiety, that nostalgia can be beautiful. It, it can beautifully connect us to a time that feels better than it does now, and it can create within us a longing to go home. Did you hear that? Nostalgia becomes particularly important during times of stress and anxiety, like now, <laughs> like then. So, let's go back to our gospel reading. No doubt the people of Israel, uh, the the people who showed up with Jesus at the synagogue that day, they were facing all kinds of stress 
and anxiety. It's not often preached about, but for example, um, did you know that there were revolts in and around Jerusalem um, for nearly, I mean, they seethed continuously for nearly a hundred years during the time of Jesus. Why? Because the Jews despised Roman occupation. Um, Beyond their bitterness for having been expelled from Rome, Jews were expelled from even being in Rome, they were also angry about huge Roman building projects in Judea and, and Galilee because, and you know what that would bring, right? It, forced, it, it brought forced labor to the people of Israel, and, and it brought high taxes to the people of Israel, which is likely why nine out of ten of the Palestinians in that time lived in poverty. Most had been driven into debt. On one occasion, Pontius Pilate wanted to build an aqueduct into the city of Jerusalem. Rome wouldn't give him the resources, so what does he do? He steals money, literally, from the temple treasury. Now, when they protested, he disguised troops, and he sent them into the temple mound where they slaughtered men and women, literally, in the temple courts. Needless to say, Palestinians in Jesus' time were frustrated. They were angry. They were, being, they, they were hurting, they were nursing their injuries, but still they were expected to show up day in and day out in their homes and in their villages taking care of the necessary tasks of just getting by despite being exhausted and discouraged with little they could do about any of it, which is why synagogue worship was so important. Sure, it was also required, but it was also very important. I mean, it held to an ancient rhythm and hearkened back to the good old days of King David's glorious kingdom, David, who first established the rhythm of Jewish worship and, and, and also wrote, supposedly wrote, many of the psalms that accompanied it, accompanied it. I mean, again, sure, this was all sort of rather required or expected by Jewish law, but it was also this time of gathering, this time of worshiping together, this time of showing up at the synagogue. It was also wonderfully nostalgic, especially the message they heard week in and week out that pointed to the Jewish people as God's chosen ones, called the children of the Most High, separate from those hated Romans destined for a higher purpose. So, for example, when Jesus read from the book of of Isaiah that day, from the prophet Isaiah, this is what He read. It's in verse 18, what we read last week. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. And here's the thing. They had no doubt that Isaiah was referring to them, to their plight, to their poverty, to the Roman occupation of their land, which partly was true, but not entirely. You see, they had become trapped in a single story with only one way of understanding that story, and, and they were comforted, supremely so, by its nostalgia, buoyed by the common enemy that, that the story gave them permission to despise. But when Jesus shows up, and in His first opportunity to teach in that synagogue, in, their, in the synagogue of His hometown, He dared to challenge their story. And did you see what happened? Nostalgia quickly turned to anger, and worshipers quickly turned into a mob. And, be, 
before they even asked a question of Jesus, they drove him out of town, unwelcome at home. Nostalgia, please hear this, an important, a beautiful, a lovely part of our memory. The challenge is when our longing for nostalgia replaces our longing for truth. And there's more. I referenced a few weeks ago a a little book that was given to me uh, a while back um, by John Pavlovich. It's a book called, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk. (laughs) Isn't that a great title? (laughs) Enough to read. In it, he says that, quote, we all have an aspirational theology. Now, bear with me. An aspirational theology. That is, a best-case scenario belief system that we'd like to have in a perfect world. That's a quote. Now, that's why we sing songs, by the way, of, of steadfast faithfulness and of expansive love. We gather around campfires and we sing we are one in the Spirit. We, we hang banners outside our church buildings that say all are welcome because we want to believe it. It's our aspirational theology. It's what we aspire to be, a place of true, unconditional love. But Pavlovich writes this, quote, The problem is we don't always embody that love as well as we'd like or we assume we do. And when we're confronted with that observation, when we're told of our inadequacies, when we're challenged to consider that how we speak about our theology isn't the way we actually live our theology, well, it creates a reaction just as it did that day uh, when Jesus said that very thing in the synagogue. They were angry. After all, Jesus had pulled back the facade of their religious lives that although God had commanded the children of Israel to love and to care for the whole world, they were more concerned with their own backyards. I mean, listen to His rebuke. Jesus reminded them, this is verse 26, He said this, you remember, right, that, that there was a famine throughout the land But the prophet Elijah was sent only to the widow in Zarephath, a non-Jew. And you remember, right, that although many in Israel had leprosy, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. You see, Jesus was reminding him, wasn't reminding them, wasn't he, that of a very basic characteristic of God, that God's love and concern is for all, not just a few. And so, the only way we can truly authentically live out our theology is to reflect that characteristic of God in our daily lives. I mean, that's the truth of the gospel. That's what Jesus came to proclaim over and over again. That's the kingdom of God that that was part of Jesus' lips, part of His teaching every day of His public ministry. But rather than dealing with that truth, they drove him out of town, hopefully never to be heard from again. My, how often we do that even today. Why? Because we are afraid to be confronted by the truth if that truth dares to confront our daily lives. Well, The Scripture, it seems to me, this story in particular, 
provides for us two challenges as we, you and I, step into a world that is, well, increasingly hostile. You know that it is, right? I mean, as we step, whether we're a teacher in a school or in the community or our neighborhoods, I mean, I love living in this community. Don't get me wrong, of course, but for some reason, we're in an era, a time throughout our, our not just community, state, nation, but our world where it is just an increasingly hostile space. And, and so, what do we do about it? This, this reading, this case study shares for us at least two challenges. One, enjoy good nostalgia, yes. Enjoy the memories that bring for you blessed, warm, sometimes sacred memory, but don't let nostalgia replace your longing for truth. And number two, make sure, friends, make sure your spoken theology is your lived theology which means simply to show up as people of great love wherever you are called to be, wherever God sends you this week, show up as people of great love. Be the good Samaritan stopping to attend the wounds of others who have walked by. Be the loving father who welcomes home the prodigal son. Be the better angels of this sometimes hellish place. That's what a good lived theology means, to show up and to try to be a presence that helps others deeply and that brings people hope, that lessens their struggle, that makes them feel seen and heard again. But friends, a warning. As you do just that, the world may very well try to run you out of town. (laughs) But if they do, at least you'll be in good company. Amen.